Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Warning, this episode includes graphic descriptions of the events of 9-11. Some listeners may find this content distressing. Stocks for beginners. The whole world now had lived through this. Certainly we had all lived through this. It had hit us home here. But here we were getting ready to try to get the exchange open and try to get back to serving the nation and investors around the world because this was pivotal, right? And I have to tell you, it was probably one of the proudest moments of my whole career being there at that moment at that day. And so she sang God Bless America and then they rang the opening bell. And as they were ringing the opening bell, everybody on the floor just went, Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. And you might remember a couple of episodes ago, I was speaking with Kenny Polcari of Case Capital. And um, we left on a bit of a cliffhanger. We were doing a history of the New York Stock Exchange in the first couple of episodes of uh, this little mini-series. We covered um, the 80s right up until the Black Monday crash of 87. And then we also covered the 90s, a bit about the tech crisis. Not too much, Kenny, was it? No. (laughs) We got to Y2K, which, um, you know, thinking back about it, you don't really think about anymore. So that was really interesting to talk to you about that, Kenny. But uh, thanks very much, Kenny, for coming back, because we're turning now to this century that we're in. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. You know, a lot has happened this century and a lot has happened to change the face of the U.S. markets. And it started really right after the turn of the century. Once we made it through the turn of the century and the world didn't blow up, it was all good, was that the, the, the country had to make the next move. And the next move was really the modernization of the U.S. capital markets, which meant now we were going to start that transfer from open outcry, human-based fractional trading to a much more automated handheld tech technology, auto delivery, auto execution marketplace that would be defined by decimalization. And so ultimately, by the time we got it all converted, then you could immediately see what technology was going to do. And remember, here's the other thing I said to you, and then we're going to get it, you'll you'll understand this better. Up to this point, technology was being used to create efficiency. Uh, Technology wasn't being used to create stability and security as the one and two positions. Stability and security were certainly part of the the equation, except efficiency was always at the top of the list. How can we make it more efficient? How can we make it faster? How can we eliminate jobs and make it more efficient? Which was exactly what technology does across the range of any industry that they start to use technology. It makes it more efficient. And so in this case, the efficiency was in order delivery, order execution, right? That the computer could do the executions and therefore there wouldn't be any errors in price or errors in amount of shares because it was all automated. And then you could start to see immediately how it was going to affect the role of the broker. And you could see the pressure on the broker then because clearly now the computer was doing all the work of the human being. All the things that the broker on the floor used to used to do manually was now being automated. And it, listen, it wasn't necessarily completely smooth. It was kind of a rough patch as the technology kind of developed. Anyway, so now we're so so that all happened by the summer of 2000, and now we're well into 2001. And then 
what really happened, in fact, that changed the world and changed uh, certainly U.S. capital markets were the events of 9-11. And I say this to you because people really need to understand, because what people didn't understand was, in fact, the real risk to the system. Because yes, and trust me, I'm not talking out of school here. I had an office on the 55th floor of the second tower. I looked right out my window, right over the Hudson River. That second plane, if you watch it on TV, went right through my office. The fact I'm even sitting here talking to you is a miracle because I should be dead and why I'm not is a whole nother story. And it's only by the grace of God that I'm sitting here talking to you because there were plenty of people that I know who were in the same position as me. They were at work, they were in the building, but they didn't get a call at the last minute to come to breakfast the way I did, which is the only reason I'm sitting here talking to you. Can I just ask uh, one question here? I just want to um, put a bit of context here. Previously, you'd been working on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Where was that? Was that on Wall Street? Yes, the, the exchange is on Wall Street. I was in the Trade Center, which was just two and a half blocks away on the west side. That was where my office was. So I would go to my office in the morning. That's where I had all my books and records and all that stuff. I would typically leave the World Trade Center at at about five minutes to nine in the morning, come down the elevator and walk across the street and actually go to work on the exchange all day. Putting on your armor and your helmet as you go in. (laughs) Right. And then at the end of the day, if I needed to, I would go back to my office at the World Trade Center. Um, And so uh, on that day... When the event happened, right, when the first plane hit the tower uh, and then the second plane hit the tower, it was like a day, certainly a day that I'd never experienced in my life because I don't live in a country where bombs are falling. You know, every time you turn around, there's another bomb. So the sound of the planes hitting the building was exactly what it must sound like in a country that's being bombed because the, the explosion and the force of it and the sound of it, um, everything was, was, I can only imagine, is what that's like. So... I was in my office that morning like I typically was, and uh, I had my own business at the time, and the three guys that worked for me had the office across the hall. And so what I would do with them is once or twice a week, I would take them to breakfast at the New York Stock Exchange on the seventh floor was a member's luncheon club, right? And so we would go to breakfast uh, once or twice a week, and we'd talk about the business. I'd talk about what happened in this trading crowd and what I did, what the other buyers did, what the sellers did, what did the customer want to do? And it was, you know, it was like a mentoring. It was like what you do, right, when you're in business. And so they came in my office at about five minutes of eight on Tuesday morning and said to me, come on, we're going to breakfast. And I said, I can't go to breakfast today. I got too much work to do. It was my business, so I was everything, right? I was the CEO, the CMO, the CTO, right? Uh, I was paying the bills. I was doing it all. The month of August had just ended. I had to go through all these bills, I, you know, all that crap you do. And so I said, I can't go. I go, but you guys go without me. Don't worry about it. I'll just see you over there at nine o'clock. And so begrudgingly, they left and they get downstairs and they start walking across the street to the exchange. And it was an absolutely spectacular day. And I'm still upstairs on the 50th floor in my office. And for some reason, one of the three guys had a bug up his ass and just said, I'm going back up to get Kenny. He comes back upstairs and he sticks his head in my office. He goes, listen, Kenny, we want you to come to breakfast. And I said, as much as I want to, I can't. I get too much work to do. But he wouldn't take no for an answer. And he finally said to me, listen, we will come back at the end of the day and we will help you do whatever it is you need to do. Just come to breakfast. I'm six feet, 230 pounds. It wasn't like I wasn't hungry. Of course I'm hungry. And so I finally said, okay. 
so I just picked up and I grabbed my floor jacket. I left everything else behind and we left the office at about 8.20, 8.22, whatever time it was. We get downstairs. Now it's about 8.35. The first building got hit at 8.48. So now we walk from the trade centers over to the, over to the exchange. And it used to only take, I could walk to the exchange in five minutes, be inside the exchange. Now, the trade centers were west of the exchange, right? They were on the Hudson River. When the first plane hit the building, it hit the North Tower going north to south, way up high in, you know, in the 90s and 100s. And so the explosion went out the south side of the building. The exchange is on the east side of the building. And we were way down on the seventh floor. I wasn't way up on some hundredth floor. I was way down some floor. So we were eating breakfast. I had no idea what had just happened. I had no idea that a plane hit the building. I didn't hear it. I didn't feel it. I didn't see it. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And so we get done with breakfast. We go down, I get in the elevator, go downstairs. And you know, you know when you are somewhere and there's something has happened, but yet nobody can really tell what it is. And there's commotion everywhere and people are running around and trying to figure out what happened. That was the tone when I got into the lobby of the exchange. And I looked at the security guy and I go, what's going on? And he said, you know, a plane flew into the side of the trade center. And you almost wanted to laugh because you're thinking to yourself, a plane. How could that possibly happen? It's not like you can't see them. They're the biggest thing in downtown Manhattan. It's a gorgeous day out. And so then you, your immediate thought was, you know, it was like a little commuter plane. The guy flying it had a heart attack. He flew into the building because it happened in 1946 at the Empire State Building, right into the 86th floor, but it was a small plane. And he goes, no, 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 no. He said, it, it wasn't a small plane. It was a jet. And you go, a jet? A jet doesn't fly down the west side of Manhattan. Like, that's not part of the flight path. What the hell's a jet doing on the west side of Manhattan? So then I go, you know what? I better go inside and call my wife because there's all this commotion. This had just happened, and nobody really knows what's happening. And the televisions are just starting to report on it. And the TVs that were on the floor are just showing pictures, right? Because there was no sound. You could just see the picture. And um, you see the building engulfed in flames. And, And I'm saying to myself, what the hell is going on? So I went to call my wife. Now, It was almost nine o'clock. Now, I know my wife's schedule. We have two daughters, and at the time, my kids were in ninth grade and sixth grade. And I know the schedule. At at 10 minutes a night, five minutes a night, the kids have really basically just gotten off to school. My wife is, you know, getting the house ready for the day, blah, blah, blah. She's not sitting around eating bonbons, right, watching TV. And so when I call her, she picks up the phone and she's crying. Now, I don't know why she's crying. I haven't figured it out yet, right? I said, Evelyn, you got to turn on the TV. And she starts screaming at me, where are you? Where are you? And I go, I'm at work. Where are you? Because I'm still not getting it, right? She's like, she's trying to catch me as if I'm lying. Like, where are you? Where are you? And I'm like, I'm at work. I go, but Evelyn, you have to turn on the TV. Well, unbeknownst to me, what had happened when the first plane hit the first tower, friends of mine who also worked in New York City, who worked in other parts of New York City, who saw this on TV and knew that I had an office in the Trade Center, had called my wife and said to her, have you spoken to Kenny? What building is Kenny in? What floor is Kenny on? And my wife said, why, why, why? And they said, turn on the TV. So now she turns on the TV and now she sees this. Then you go into panic mode, right? Because now she can't remember which building I'm in. She can't remember what floor I'm on, but she's in almost in shock, right? Looking at the TV. And so she calls my office. Now, I wasn't there, right? So the phone rang and rang and rang. There was no answer. And then she calls down to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange to my booth space. And we were upstairs having breakfast. And so the guy 
next to us in the booth picks up the phone and says, I haven't seen Kenny. Kenny's not here. And so now she starts to panic because she can't really figure out what's going on. She's watching the news like everyone else is watching the news and she has no idea where I am. So when I come downstairs and call her, naturally she's on the edge, right? And she's crying and she's screaming at me. And I said, Evelyn, Evelyn, turn on the TV and tell me what's happening. So she starts to tell me that they flew a plane into the trade center. Who the hell is they? And then she starts talking about Al-Qaeda. Who the hell is Al-Qaeda? And so suddenly she starts to scream in my ear through the phone because she's now watching the TV and she's watching as the second plane is circling around, coming directly at the second building. Now, I don't know that, right? Because from where I'm standing on the floor, I I don't have a TV in front of me, so I don't really know. And suddenly she's screaming. And I said, Evelyn, why are you screaming? And suddenly there was this massive explosion because when the second plane came through and hit the building, it came through from west to east. And because it hit in the middle of the building, it was much lower to the ground. And so when the explosion came out the east side of the building, that was towards the exchange, right? Because the exchange was east. And so the sound and the vibration and the force of the explosion was directed straight at you. It was directed, right. And so now I'm standing on the floor on the phone with my wife when it happened and she's screaming and suddenly there was this massive explosion and you could actually feel the building shake. Right now I'm two and a half blocks away, maybe three blocks away from the from the trade center. But you could feel the building shake. And then suddenly there was um it was probably about 30 seconds. They sounded the alarm at the exchange and they said everybody's got to get out because this was clearly no longer this wasn't an accident, this wasn't, you know, a one-off. This was obviously something much, much deeper. And so the fear was that the New York Stock Exchange was next, right? Because when you think about America and you think about developed nations and developed markets, the New York Stock Exchange really represents... It's a symbol. It's a symbol. If it's nothing else, it's a symbol of America. It's a symbol of freedom. It's a symbol of capitalism. It's a symbol of the free world, right? Wherever you are in the free world, it actually is a symbol. You're exactly right. And so no one really understood what's going on. But the fear was, okay, we're next because if somebody really wanted to make a statement, I mean, they made a statement, but had they flown a plane into the exchange, they would have brought this country and really the global financial markets to a standstill. And I'll explain why I couldn't, because in fact, it did happen. So here's what happened. So now the, the buildings get hit. You know, the lights are still on. The computers are still on. The phones are still on. But the exchange is not opening, clearly, for that day. That's fine. And so we had to evacuate the building. So I evacuated the building. I was on the phone with my wife and I said to her, listen, I have to get out of this building because they're evacuating it. I said, I want you to do me a favor. I said, I want you to hug the girls and tell them that I love them very much because I didn't know if I was coming home. I wasn't coming home. I had no idea what to expect when I walked outside in the street. And so I had to hang up. Now, also remember that the antenna for the cell cell phones were on the top of the first tower. It was a big, huge, massive antenna. And so when the building got hit, that antenna got knocked out. You couldn't get cell service, right? So even though I had a cell phone, the cell phone didn't work. You couldn't connect. And so we walked outside. We walked out the east side of the exchange. And then they, they forced you to walk east towards the East River, naturally, because the trade centers were on the west side. And they didn't want people walking west. They had a, So everyone was walking east. So I'm walking down Wall Street towards the East River. And it wasn't until I got halfway down, probably right about 40 Wall Street, which also happens to be the Trump building. 
And you turn from there, you turn at that moment, you could turn and see just the top halves of the trade center because it was just where you were, right? In terms of, you know, the, the buildings and all that stuff. But you could see the top halves of the trade center. And it was only at that moment that I saw what everybody else in the world was seeing, right? I could see both buildings in flames. I could see the smoke. I could see all that. And the other thing that I could see, and it's etched in my mind, and I cannot, I can't get it out of my my mind. But while I couldn't see that it was you or you or you, you could see the images of falling bodies, people that were jumping. You could just see them falling. And, you know, and I sat there on the street and I kept rubbing my eyes like, A, you couldn't process it. And B, you thought to yourself, like, this can't be happening. What I'm seeing can't be happening. But yet, in fact, it was happening. And so I remember at that moment turning around and then we walked, you know, we were being told to move, move, move. So we walked down to the East River and then I walked north because I live north of the city. I lived about 50 miles north of downtown New York City. And so the bridges and tunnels were all came to a standstill. They know all the bridges got closed immediately. No one was going anywhere. The subways, forget the subways. I wasn't going down to the subway, but the subways had all stopped anyway. We were walking in the street. And what was also so interesting was the cars came to a standstill on the street because there was the traffic wasn't moving. And because it was such a gorgeous day, people had their windows down. And it was like everybody had the radio tuned to the same station. And as you're walking by these cars. You could hear out of all the cars, you could just hear the radio. You could hear the radio announcer. You could hear them repeating. And then you could hear the sirens. You could hear the ambulances. You could hear the, the police cars. You know, you could hear all that noise. But then you could almost hear a pin drop. Like it was surreal like that. You know what I mean? And nobody was talking. Because we weren't right next to the building, people where I was weren't running around screaming and yelling. They were just walking like drones. They were just, no one was even talking to each other, right? I was fully prepared to walk home. And so when we walked up, the first bridge is the Brooklyn Bridge. And then the next bridge is the Manhattan Bridge, which is right where in Chinatown. And so when we got to Chinatown, right at the foot of the Manhattan Bridge, there suddenly was this tremendous noise. And it sounded like there were planes flying above that were dropping bombs. And then it sounded like the streets were blowing up, like the subways were blowing up. And so I turned around and I said to the guys I went, I said, they're blowing up the city. Like, that's what I thought was going to happen. Like the streets were suddenly going to explode, like you see in, in the movies, right? Like where they blow the street. And what was happening was the building was collapsing. And so the, the force of the building collapsing and the collapse and the, the rumbling and everything, A, it felt like an earthquake because you could feel the ground shake. And I was probably about, maybe I was two miles away from from the site by this point, but the sound of the building collapsing. And then that, like everybody knows, that plume of smoke that just went up, right? The dust and the smoke. And I remember standing there in the street watching the building collapse. And as I'm standing there in the street, I realized that the first building to collapse was the second building to get hit. And it collapsed first because it, it got hit way down in the center. And so it weakened faster and all the weight above it caused it to collapse. That was the building I was in. So here's what I'm going to tell you. Had my partner not come back to get me, Mm. 
I would have been in my office when the first building got hit, which was next door. When the first building got hit, they sounded the alarm in both buildings and they told people to exit the building, but you had to exit in the stairwell. You couldn't exit in the elevators, right? That would have been at 848, right? So I would have been like everybody else exiting the building down the stairs. So the other people that were on the 55th floor who survived that I know, of which there were four of them, were walking down the stairs. So from 8.48 till 9.01 when the second building got hit, which was about 12 minutes, they had gone from the 55th floor to the 25th floor. So they they had descended 30 floors in 12 minutes. And then the building got hit. And when the building got hit, because it got hit much lower, the, the explosion, the fire, the pandemonium ensued. And when the building got hit, the building rocked like this and people got thrown off the stairways. And it was apparently it was just chaos, right? And so I think to myself, where would I have been at that moment? I would have been somewhere on the 25th floor, the 26th floor, maybe the 24th floor, right? Because I would have been exiting with everybody else. It took those four guys 55 more minutes to go from 25 out to the street. So to go another 25 floors, it took them 55 minutes, all right? So the building got hit at 901. It collapsed at I think it actually collapsed at 10.01 or 10.02 when it collapsed. They get out of the building at 9.55. They get out of the building with about four or five minutes to spare. So I think to myself, where would I have been? What would I have done? Would I have made it out? Would I have gotten stuck behind somebody? Would I have stopped to help somebody? Would I have stepped out onto the plaza and seen all the dead bodies and the fire and the people jumping in that I would have been so traumatized that I just stopped for a minute? And if you stopped for a minute, when the building started to collapse, you were getting caught. There was no way out. So, so in my mind, I would not be here today had he not come back to get me. I just, I, just, I just don't think I would have. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Anyway, so now we're at the Manhattan Bridge and I'm watching the, we watch the building collapse. And I, and I remember sitting there and the first thing was the thought in my head about me being in that building. And then me thinking of everybody who I knew was in that building. And so then we started to walk again, and it was 10 minutes later, and the same thing happened. It was 10 minutes later, it was when the second building collapsed. And so the same rumbling, the same sound, the same everything happened for a second time. And we watched as the second building kind of disappeared from the skyline. And I remember just standing there, almost mute, right? You just, you, you couldn't even say anything, right? You were so... Um, just shocked at the thought of uh, trying to process what had just happened, right? And so then we walked to, we got all the way to Grand Central. Now, I would commute out of Grand Central. So I was going the way I would go home, but they had shut down Grand Central. They shut down Penn Station. Now, those are two, those are the two of the, the commuter stations that come into Manhattan, right? From the northern suburbs as well as from Long Island, right? They come into Penn Station from New Jersey. But when we got to Grand Central Station, Grand Central Station had been shut down anyway, and there were throngs of people, but they wouldn't let anybody in Grand Central Station. One of the guys I was with, his father was a lawyer, and his father's lawyer's office was right there at Grand Central. So we went upstairs to the father's lawyer's office, because remember, the cell phones weren't working. So I hadn't spoken to my wife, my parents, my brothers, 
you know, my wife was the last one I spoke to at 9.01 in the morning, right? Now, all this has happened. She doesn't know where I am. She doesn't know now if I'm in the cloud. I'm not in the cloud that I survived. And she can't call me and I can't call her. So now it's 12 o'clock by the time we got to Grand Central. That's how long it took us to walk up to 42nd Street. So we get up to 42nd Street and we go up to the father's office. And I sit down at the phone. I start making phone calls, right? So naturally, I called my wife. And so she picks it up and she's crying. And there were all kinds of people at my house and all that stuff. And I told her I was I was okay and that I was not downtown. I was not in the cloud, that I had managed to you know, walk to Grand Central and that I was fully prepared to walk home. And so she was, no, 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 I'm coming to get you. No, no, no. First of all, you can't come to get me because you're not coming in the city. They won't let cars in the city. A and B, you've got the girls and I'm fully prepared to walk home. Don't worry about me. I'll figure it out. Right. And so when we came down, they had just started to open up Grand Central again. The city decided that, you know, let's get as many people out of the city as we can get. And so they opened up the train. They opened up the the terminal. And so people were just fighting to get in. And what you have to understand also about Grand Central is if you've never been, there are two levels to Grand Central. There's the ground level. And then there's this subterranean level that also has train tracks and all that stuff. And it's below ground. And so the train I had to take was naturally the train on the subterranean level. And I thought to myself, I'm going to go one of the other trains. I'm just going to go to Connecticut. If I get out to Connecticut, then I can call somebody to come pick me up. And mm. But I didn't. In the end, I decided to get on my own train. So I went downstairs into the lower level and I got on the train. They're electric trains, first of all. And so the trains were up. Uh, I mean, you, it was standing room only shoulder to shoulder. And so people were not talking. When you got on the train, people were not talking. You could hear people crying. You could hear people praying, but nobody was like talking. And so the door shut. Now, you know, when you're on an electric train and the door shut and the train first starts to move and, you know, the sparks fly and then the lights go out, and then they come back on again in the train. So that's what happens. Every time the train left the station, that would happen for all of, you know, five seconds. But when it happened that moment... Hmm. You know, everybody thought it was the end, right? That now we're never going to make it out of here. Something was going to blow up. Meanwhile, it didn't. So it takes 12 minutes. By the time the train leaves the station and the subterranean, even upstairs level, it takes 12 minutes by the time the train leaves the station to get to 125th Street, which is up and out of the tunnel where you're actually outside. And so for 12 minutes, it was like everybody held their breath, right? And they were just waiting, waiting for the train to come up into the sunlight. So it comes up into the sunlight. Now, when it gets to 125th Street, the trains, the tracks go left and then they go north again, right? So they head kind of west a little bit and then they start to head north again. When the train kind of makes that left-hand turn, you can look out one side of the train and you can see all the way down Manhattan, right? On a clear day, you could see the Statue of Liberty, right? That's how clear it was. And so when the train came up and out and made that that turn before it went north again. Everybody in the train, you know, kind of crouched down to look out the window. And what we saw was just, the only thing that was left was that cloud because that cloud hung around for, for hours. Actually, I think it hung around for a day and a half or something. It was just kind of hanging there. Right. And so, uh, we all saw that cloud and then the train just kept going. And again, you know, it was really surreal because nobody was talking, but you could hear people crying and you could hear people praying and all that stuff. Anyway, so by the time we got to my stop, it was about 2.15 in the afternoon. I get out of my stop, I get in my car and I drive home and I walked into my house. It's now about 2.30, whatever time it was, 2.40. And, um, you know, my wife was there, there were other people there and everyone was crying, but then everyone was happy that I had walked through the door and blah, blah, blah. And I get it. And, you know, it was all very 
emotional, but I sat down on the couch to watch TV because I had yet to really see what anyone had seen. Yeah. I sat on that couch for three days. I didn't move. I just didn't move. I just kept, I just kept staring at the TV. I just kept watching it over and over and over. Like I couldn't, I couldn't process it. Right. And, uh, and then the other thing was when my, when it happened, my older daughter was in a private school in Tarrytown, New York. And, uh, when it happened, the private school uh, went through their files and they looked up any kid whose parents had a World Trade Center address. And they went around the school and they took all those kids out of school, out of the classroom. And they said, you need to you need to come to the cafeteria. You need to call home. You need to call somebody. You need to call your mother. You need to call your father. You need to call somebody because nobody really knew what, what, who was safe and who wasn't safe. And so my daughter, you know, they didn't really give the kids a whole lot of information. They just said there was an accident <clears throat> and there's trouble downtown and you have your father's in the wall. Your father's in the trade center. Your mother's in the trade center. And you need to call somebody to see what's going on. What's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And so my daughter calls my wife. And at the time it was after I'd spoken to my wife, but before I spoke to her again. So it was in between that nine and 12 o'clock period. Right. And so when my daughter finds out what happens, when they, when they actually explain to the kids what happened and the kids begin to understand the gravity of it, my daughter says to my wife, is daddy okay? <clears throat> and my wife's response was yes, but she really didn't know whether or not, because now remember when I hung up with her, I was still at the exchange. Now all this other stuff had happened. So my wife didn't really know if I was okay or not. Um, but she said, you know, I think daddy's okay. Yes, I, he's not home, but I think daddy's okay. And so there was this, there was this sense of clear uncertainty for sure. So they sent the kids, they sent all the kids home that day. So my wife had to go pick up my daughter and then she had to pick up my younger daughter who was in school locally. So they went and picked her up and they, you know, all the kids got dismissed from school and all that stuff. And so, um, so then I got home and uh, I sat on the couch and I sat on the couch for three days. I just stared at the TV. I couldn't, I couldn't even talk. And then what happened was on this, on Wednesday, I got a phone call from my mother. I got a phone call from my dearest childhood friend who called looking for me, talked to me, blah, blah, make sure I was okay. And then said to me, have you heard from, uh, did you hear about uh, Teddy Hennessy? Teddy Hennessy was a friend of ours who, who we grew up with in town a lot. No, why would I hear about Teddy Hennessy? He goes, Teddy Hennessy was on the plane that went through your office. He was a kid that I grew up with that got on the flight going to California from Boston. And uh, he was on the plane that went right through my office. And I thought to myself, you know, we were very good friends with them. Our families were friends and all that stuff. And I thought to myself, can it get any worse? Right. And so I said to my mother, I called my mother. I go, how come you didn't tell me? And she said, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you that um, that had happened because I didn't. You were having a difficult enough time as it was, so um, the exchange remained, you know, closed for uh, <clears throat> for six days. I, I apologize. I, I uh, no, look, I'm just getting emotional here thinking about it because I just wanted to point out because I know. I know this is emotional and I'm feeling emotional now hearing about it, but, but you mentioned about the bodies falling out of the building and that was because they were just because they had the choice of either being burnt alive or... Or jumping. Yeah, I can't imagine being faced with that choice because that's exactly right. They were either going to burn or they were going to jump. But that's exactly, that's exactly the choice those people had to make. And, uh, 
Yeah, they, they, it opened after six days. Yeah, so now understand. So here's, what, here's the part that people don't understand, is that the exchange now in their move to become this 21st century modern automated exchange, you know, had all these cables and wires and fiber optic cables that ran all the computers and all the telephones and everything on the floor of the exchange, and they all ran through the belly of the Trade Center. Right. There was a conduit that ran through the belly of the Trade Center and out the Hudson River and then out to the world. Right. That's how the exchange connected to everybody. So when the Trade Centers collapsed, all those wires got severed. And so now, as 21st century as the exchange was, it was now neutered. It was really essentially at the moment it was worthless because it couldn't function, because even though you could turn the lights on, none of the computers worked. I mean, you could turn the computer on because the electricity worked, but there was no information. There was no connection, right? So it was useless. We had already gone from open outcry to automated trading, number one. But number two, when you think about all the brokers that were in not only the trade center buildings, but the buildings all around it that got damaged, you know, those Merrill Lynch, it was Dean Witter, there was Kenneth Fitzgerald, there was Lehman Brothers, there was, you know, a whole bunch of brokers that were also now, those offices were out of business as well. And so the industry realized immediately and the country, I mean, the country, meaning, you know, the SEC, the industry, we all realized immediately that the exchange now was neutered. And remember, in 2001, if you traded a New York Stock Exchange stock, it really traded on the exchange, on the floor of the exchange. All the other venues that exist today didn't exist then. They exist today because they were born out of that event. Now, listen, they may have come anyway at some point down the line, but that event gave birth to all these other exchanges which we have today. And so they were, they were distributed. So well, they are now. But then around. on 9-11, the New York Stock Exchange was it, right? So when the computers didn't work and you couldn't turn it on, the exchange couldn't open. So the exchange was neutered. Now, the NASDAQ, which is located up in Times Square and is a completely automated exchange, was different. Their computers and wires and cables, none of their stuff got destroyed. But at the time, the way that the industry was written, you couldn't trade New York Stock Exchange stocks on NASDAQ. You couldn't trade NASDAQ stocks on New York Stock Exchange. And so there was no backup plan. There was no plan B. You know, there was no plan because who in their right mind could have not only envisioned an event like that, but who would have been prepared for an event like that? So that brought up a couple of things, you know, about preparation, disaster preparation. You never know, right? Blah, blah, blah. It also then brought to light the vulnerability of the United States. Here we were, the largest capital markets in the world out of all the developed nations around the world. United States and the U.S. capital markets are the largest developed markets. And we're still operating in the 21st century in a single location with the same 5,500 people every day that would make it work. Okay. So now maybe instead of 5,500, there were 5,000 because maybe there had been some attrition, but it was still, you understand what I mean, right? Yeah. Naively believing that the rest of the world had America's best interests at heart. How wrong could one be? Correct. And so- the realization that, you know, essentially we were fucked, right? Because that's it. And if you were somebody who wanted to sell your stock, you know, you called up your broker now and you said, uh, listen, I want to sell all my stock. I don't, I don't want to own a piece of paper that says I own GE or Coca-Cola. I want my money. And the broker says to you, I, I, I can't sell your stock because the exchange isn't open. So uh, that's on Tuesday. You say, okay. So then you call them on Wednesday. You say, okay, sell my stock today. I can't because the exchange isn't open. So now you start to get a little bit panicked. And then Thursday comes and you say, okay, sell my stock today. 
And guess what? You can't. And so here's because here's the problem. When the, as I said, all the all the cables and wires get severed, and so the exchange did not function. And so we recognized that right away, and we shipped guys in from around the country almost immediately. You know, cable guys, phone guys, uh, uh, fiber optic guys, because they had to rewire every server and computer at the New York Stock Exchange and the phone lines back to the outside world in order for it to get up and running, so that we could, in fact resume trading. This all while this disaster was happening just three blocks away. And so the other thing that we had to do was how could you say to Merrill Lynch, oh yeah, we're going to open on Monday, but I'm sorry, you lost your office. You can't play. Well, you can't tell Merrill Lynch I can't play. So we also had to find temporary, they were all temporary, office space for Merrill Lynch and for Lehman Brothers and for Dean Witter and for Kenneth Fitzgerald, what was left of them and all that stuff, right? And so Bloomberg, I will say Michael Bloomberg just shipped Bloomberg terminals to anybody who needed them. And if anyone knows anything about Bloomberg, they're very expensive. <laughs> Michael Bloomberg makes a ton of money. They're very expensive terminals. But he just shipped terminals to anybody who needed it, Verizon, phone sets, to anybody who needed it, right? And so we, like the firm that I had started this equities division, was called ICAP. It was a British-based interdealer broker. It was the largest interdealer broker in the world. Warehoused in the meatpacking district because there are all these empty buildings, right? Jeez, these big empty uh, warehouse buildings in the meatpacking district. And that's where really everybody got set up, all these people that needed temporary space. Um, and think about this for a minute. This event happened on Tuesday. And by Sunday night, they had the exchange back up and running. They had the phones all connected. Now, when I say they had the phones all connected, I had one telephone line. Prior to this accident, I had 15 different direct lines that would come into my booth. Plus, I had two regular dial-up lines, right? So I had potentially 17 lines that I could use to talk to people. I had one telephone line, one. Everybody had one single telephone line that worked. But the computers all worked, so the connectivity from customers into the handhelds, that was supposedly working. They got Merrill Lynch set up. They got all these other brokers set up. A lot of the brokers also moved their trading to other locations to accommodate right during this whole happen. But one way or the other, by Sunday, we were mostly ready to start trading. And so we had to come down on Saturday and Sunday down to the exchange. We had to test the systems. We had to test the computers. They were trying to stress the system on Saturday and Sunday to see if it would fail. Because look, let's not kid ourselves. They put it together with spit and band-aids, you know, in six days. But we came down on Saturday and Sunday. And, and when you came down to the city, you could only come down as far as the Brooklyn Bridge. And you had to get out of the Brooklyn Bridge. You had to walk for the next 15 blocks to get down to the exchange. But there were two circles of... Um, National Guard, right? They made two circles. And when you got to the checkpoint, you had to show them your pass. You had to show them your ID. You had to show them your building pass. And then you passed the next one and you had to do the same thing again. And then you passed ultimately to the exchange. And so when you got to the exchange, you know, you went in there, you made sure the phones rang, you made sure the, you know, the computers turned on. And okay, it did, but it was Saturday and Sunday. The markets weren't really going to be open till Monday. So here's the point about the fear that happened. Remember I said, if you're an American and you tried to sell your stock on Tuesday and then on Wednesday and you couldn't do it. Okay, well, think about you and think about everyone on your side of the world and think about people in Europe. Because listen, as much as you live in Australia, you may have an investment portfolio that includes US names. The same way I have an investment portfolio that includes Asian names and names on your side of the world and names in Europe and all that stuff, right? And so you then call your broker and you say, you see what's happening. Now, your markets are fully functioning, right? European markets, Asian markets, uh, Australian markets, they're fully functioning. There's no problem. Yet, the U.S. market, we're not. And so when you think about how money moves around the world, right? Sunday night in New York is Monday morning in Asia. So Trading kicks off in Asia, and then it goes from Asia to Europe, Europe to the U.S., U.S. back to Asia in a seamless 24-hour move. Well, during these six days, 
trading started in Asia, it went to Europe, and then it stopped. Trading around the world stopped at uh, four o'clock in the afternoon European time because then there was nothing to do in the United States. And so when you took the United States out of the mix, it actually crippled the rest of the world because you took a whole set of players out of the game. So number one, it started to cripple markets in the other parts of the world. People in other parts of the world started to get anxious and nervous as well. And then you say to your broker, listen, I want you to sell all my U.S. stocks because I want my cash. And your broker says, I can't because the United States market isn't open. So now what happens is there is now this fear that begins to build in investors around the world, not just the United States. And so it was incumbent upon us that we had to get the exchange up and running again. We had to because there was going to be this global panic. Now, if you ask me, do I think Al-Qaeda knew that the wise and everything went to the bottom? I don't think they knew at all. I just think that that was just a consequence of Yeah, I don't think that was the target. I think that just ended up being one of the consequences. But it started to create panic, and we knew that it was going to create panic. But, you know, what we didn't do is get on TV and say, oh, by the way, the exchange can't open because it can't open. You didn't want to create more panic. So the focus was on the event and how the exchange was, you know, gearing back up, try to bring people to work and blah, 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 blah. And so uh, on the Monday morning, which was the 17th of September, Everyone who could come back to work came back to work. Some people chose forever, never come back to work. And that was okay. It is what it is, right? I went back to work as did, you know, most people. But they also had on that Monday, they had policemen and firemen and EMT workers. And they had, you know, Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer, who are state senators. They had this woman from, she's in the army and she's an acapella singer and she's got a beautiful voice and, uh, She stood on the podium, for anyone who's familiar with the New York Stock Exchange, every morning where they ring the bell on this podium that kind of stands over. Yeah, yeah, we've always seen, you know, the companies, uh, you know, listing and ringing that bell, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so this woman gets on the podium, and you can actually probably YouTube it and see it, and she starts to belt out, God bless America, you know, an acapella style. The whole room was quiet, 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 and this woman just belts this out. And it became an extremely emotional moment because, you know, the whole world now had lived through this. Certainly we had all lived through this. It had hit us home here. But here we were getting ready to, you know, try to get the exchange open and try to get back to serving the nation and investors around the world because this was pivotal, right? And I have to tell you, it was probably one of the proudest moments of my whole career being there at that moment at that day. And so she sang God Bless America, and then they rang the opening bell. And as they were ringing the opening bell, everybody on the floor just went, (gasps) and kind of just held their breath. Because at that moment, when they flipped the switch, you didn't know whether the computers were going to light up, they weren't going to light up, were the phones going to ring, was it going to be business, quote unquote, as usual. And so when they flipped the switch, you could hear the hum of the computers. You could see the execution started taking place automatically. You could see the ticket tape start to move. And then business got done. Now, everyone ran around all day long. It was not the usual place that it was, but people just did what they had to do. They executed orders. It was an ugly day, as you can imagine. And everyone expected it, that the market was going to come under pressure because you could finally sell your stock and you didn't know what was going to happen next. And you said, screw it. I want my money. I've worked for 40 years of my life. I got a $5 million portfolio, which now by by the following Monday is only worth $3 million because it's lost all this value, right? You want your money out of the market. And so sell, 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 sell. And so by the end of the day, the market had ended down. And this was 2001. I think the market ended down nearly 600 points, which was a big move in 2001. And it traded on huge volume. 
more than it had uh, traded. Surprisingly, it didn't even hiccup during the day. It wasn't like it was going to fail. The system was going to get overwhelmed. It was unbelievable that it did not even hiccup. But at four o'clock when the bell rang, as ugly as that day was from a financial perspective, from the losses that had been realized, when the bell rang at four o'clock, it was like everybody exhaled at the same time. It was like you were holding your breath the whole day. And that's when it became really emotional because it was at that moment that you looked around at each other and you said, okay, you know, they kicked us in the gut. They knocked us down for six days, but now we came back and it was like, you could feel the whole country stand up and kind of lock arms. You know, when you lock arms and you, and you stand up, it was like at that moment, you could feel the whole country stand up and say, you knocked us down. Now we're coming at you. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.